It's great to be with you. Let's go ahead and let's read the Bible passage again from last week. It's on the first page, Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, where our unity in Christ is taught. So I'm reading again on the first page the Bible passage from Ephesians 2. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Why? Because uh, Gentiles were not circumcised. So in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Those would be the Jewish Christians. They were all circumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, you Gentiles, in Christ Jesus, you who believe in him, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, namely Jesus, is our peace, who has made us, that would be both Jew and Gentile, both one, and has broken down, namely Jesus, in his bodily flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. What divides people? Jesus unites through faith in him. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that would be like the dietary stuff. Read, you know, parts of the old, I'm not talking, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments here. He's talking about the other regulations specifically for Israel, like diet, etc. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, that is to say, between Jew and Gentile. And he came and preached peace to you, namely you Gentiles, who were far off, and peace to those who were near, even to the Jews. For through him, namely Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you now, of course, the all implied here is through faith in Jesus, are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. So that would be Adam, Abraham, Noah, Jacob, Joseph, just keep going down the list. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets would be the Old Testament prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, namely in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, so last week we read part of this and we were stressing that in Christ, Jew and Gentile are one. One body, the church, okay? And so we left off on page three and we were simply rejoicing that Israel, we're talking, when I talk about Israel, I mean the children of Israel in the Old Testament. They were chosen by God, starting with Abraham. And so his family then chosen by God for a holy purpose. And that holy purpose was this. So that Jesus Christ could be born of the Virgin Mary, suffer under Pontius Pilate, be crucified, died, buried, risen from the dead for your salvation. This was God's plan. And just a side note, I, I know when you study history, some of you are history buffs, some of you aren't, but nonetheless, when you study history, history is not serendipitous. 
That is to say, it's not accidental. God is providential, which means God controls the history of the world. And so, before the coming of Jesus, God was using the history of the world, controlling the history of the world, so that this would happen in Christ's death and resurrection. That's why then he is born as a Jew. All right? So let's keep going on page three. We'll start on the top page three. So Jesus was a Jew by birth, circumcised into Israel on the eighth day of his life, walked on Israel's dry and dusty roads, and in addition, he walked in Samaritan territory. Remember, if you're a Jew, you don't go to Samaria, and you don't associate with Samaritans. Do you remember the history? What's the distinction between Samaritans and Jews? Do you remember that history, any of you? Let me review that then very quickly. So in the Old Testament, you remember that God, well, let me back this up even more. The kingdom of Israel, after the death of Solomon, divided into two parts, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Got that? So again, after Solomon dies, the kingdom of Israel divides into two parts, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. To make the long story short, eventually, because of the northern kingdom's idolatry, which begins immediately. And of course it was set, the, 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 the precedent was set by Solomon himself. The idolatry and the worship of false gods. And so because of the northern kingdom's idolatry, breaking the first commandment and then therefore breaking all the rest of them, God sent a foreign nation to conquer the northern kingdom, the Assyrians. Okay. Now, what the Assyrians did, and they were ruthless people. I won't go into the detail of the things they did, but they were very ruthless. What they did is they forced the Northern Kingdom Jews to intermarry with non-Jewish people. Forced them to. And they did it. And so, if you're a member of the Southern Kingdom, and you've got, you've got family members that live in the northern kingdom, and your family members start intermarrying with pagan unbelievers, you're going to say, we, we have nothing to do with you anymore. Thus the Samaritans. And so there was this divide. The Samaritan people were the ones who <clears throat> intermarried with pagans, and they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture and other things that I could talk about. But again, this sets the table for the New Testament, and it's why it's so shocking that in John chapter 4, that Jesus, sitting by Jacob's well, who does he encounter? A Samaritan woman. So that's strike one. Samaritan. Strike two, a woman. Because in the ancient world, you don't talk to women in public either. Okay. So two strikes, and yet Jesus addresses her, talks to her, has a conversation with her, and he reveals himself to her as the Messiah, not only for the Jews, but also for who? The Samaritans. Now, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is healing the breach, if you will. He is the Messiah, is not just the Messiah for the Southern Kingdom Jews, but even for Northern Kingdom Samaritans, who are not even considered to be people okay, by the Southern Kingdom. So does that make sense? All right. So Jesus walks on Samaritan territory. He even walks on Gentile territory. And this is shocking. Again, if you're a southern kingdom Jew. And by the way, the southern kingdom, because of her idolatry, was eventually conquered by who? The Babylonians. Now, another side note, by the way. Um, 
I'm very patriotic. You can't ever say that I'm not patriotic. However, we must guard against the idolatry of worshiping the state. Okay? You have to keep the, you have to keep a distinction. You can be patriotic, but don't don't worship the state. Okay? And that's a that's a big danger for Americans. And what I'm trying to say not very well, so have mercy on me, is if if we as Americans think that because of our idolatries and all of our sins, and I could just tick them off, I could list them, okay? And they're getting worse by the minute, okay? Do you really think that God's going to allow this country to continue? Do you really think so? A lot of Americans think that America will last forever. No joke. Ask your friends who are really patriotic. And again, just so that you know, I am very patriotic. But I don't worship our country. I worship God only. Okay? And God has use of nations for a certain specific time. And there are times in the history of the world where when a country says, two middle fingers to you, God, God says, okay, have it your way. You're going to cease to exist. So that was just a side note. We have to watch this very, very carefully. So what you need to do is you need to pray, you need to get involved, etc., so that the false worship and the idolatry is minimized or can cease. Sorry for that side note. But Jesus, again, in the New Testament, goes to Samaria. He deals with Gentiles. Why? Because through his death and resurrection, he's going to bring people from all nations, ethnicities, into one body, namely his church. The church is the body of Christ, Scripture says, and he's the head. Christ the head, the church is his body. Let's keep going. Second paragraph. The appearance of Jesus then brought the division of the Israelite and the Gentile, of the circumcised and uncircumcised, to an end. The wall, which had stood for some 1,400 years, cracked at the sound of his preaching, and it tumbled to the ground as the earth shook, literally shook, in his death. When the curtain of the temple the dividing wall between holy and unholy was torn in two from top to bottom. I remind you what Jesus says in the New Testament from John's Gospel. He says, when I am lifted up, and he means being lifted up on the cross to reign as the King of kings and Lord of lords. When I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. Which is his way of saying, I die for everybody. And it's his way of saying, through faith in me, no matter what the color of your skin, no matter what culture, no matter what nationality, you are now part of a new creation, a new humanity. And how is that spelled? C-H-U-R-C-H. -H, church. So, let me continue. In our Lord's very Good Friday death, the wall that divides people comes tumbling down and the world is one in him. Let me say something else about this. In Adam, remember Adam, when Adam sinned, Adam became the head of what? A fallen what? Humanity. And that's why scripture teaches, like for example in Romans 5 and elsewhere, that when Adam sinned, that's why now everybody's a sinner. So in that sense, Adam then is the head of a fallen humanity. And then Paul, Paul continues this, that theme in Romans 5 and elsewhere in the Bible, that God sends a second Adam, Jesus who is now the head of what? A redeemed what? Humanity. Now again, I'm side-noting it all over the place, and it gets wild and woolly, and I'm going to try and keep this uh, as calm as I can. But we, we live in times where people are desperate to create a new humanity. What's the latest rage? Two letters, the acronym. AI. 
AI, which of course isn't trying to create a new, well it is a new humanity, but yet it's inhumanity at the same time. It's a paradox where you can escape your human nature and your body, right? And thus a new humanity. And of course, it's, it's paraded as and it's advertised as a what? A better, quote, all in air quotes, humanity. So uh, how ironic, escape your created physical stuff and then call it a humanity, okay? It's nonsense, it's nonsense. It's not going to lead to good things, generally speaking. All right, so here's my point. <coughs> in Christ Jesus, there is a new humanity. It's believers in Christ who believe in him and then God's good use of these people, no matter what the color of their skin, ethnicity or culture, is that God then uses these people to preach the gospel, teach the gospel, and love people in their daily vocations. That's the new humanity. So I say this because we, whether it's AI, or whether it's some college professor, or whether it's some politician, and maybe even a pastor, who will say, oh, if only, if only we do this. Now I'd flip it, and I'd do it this way, but usually the acronym goes like this. What does this acronym stand for? Diversity, equity, inclusion. I flip it, D-I-E, because that's what it's really all about. Sorry, bad joke. But again, we live, we live in a society. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. Are we to include people? Of course we are. Are we to discriminate against people? No, we're not. So don't misunderstand what I'm doing here. What I'm doing, trying to do, and again, not very well, have mercy on me, is this DEI program that everybody's pushing to speak in general is trying to do what? Create a new humanity, a better humanity, but it's all done apart from who? The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So there's a grain of truth to having this, having this, and having this, but yet the grain of truth is used for all kinds of naughtiness. By the way, another side note. The E in the acronym, equity. You realize what that means, don't you? See, this country was founded, and you can argue, we could have, you can argue all you want whether our, the founding of our country was right or not. But what I'm telling you is our country was founded on the fact of equality in what sense? The opportunity. The opportunity. Now, equity, when you hear the word equity today, there's something afoot. And what is afoot? It's we will mandate, the people in charge are going to mandate that everybody is on the same level, regardless of your ability, talents, your effort, whatever. So I'll give you an example just to make, make it concrete, okay? And this is where it's going, and this is why you should really fight it with this concrete example. Imagine, <clears throat> we'll just pick on Steph uh, Stroy today. So Steph Stroy's having these problems with her heart, she, her, her chest doesn't feel good. She's having this pressure and pain in her chest. She goes to the doctor, and the doctor then refers her to a specialist, a heart specialist. And lo and behold, the heart specialist did not get his job because the heart specialist knows his stuff and earned his way. In other words, he only got the job as heart surgeon because of the color of his skin. That's it. He knows nothing really about heart surgery, but be, because he has a certain ethnicity, that's equality. That's the, that's the equity. That's where this is all headed. You think this is, I'm not joking, this is where it's all headed. 
So people don't get jobs anymore in America because of their working hard, because they know their stuff. It's just, I checked the right box. Okay. What's the new humanity? It's the church, those who believe in Christ Jesus. So watch out for those who try to create a new humanity. It's not going to end well. There was a hand. Okay, now, has equality turned into what? It's turned into equity. What probably 20, 30 years ago, we all had to go, where I worked at, we all had to go to university classes. And it's not, it's a very similar concept. Yes, and again, just, just to repeat. So the shift in terminology is from equality, which gives people the equal opportunity to succeed. Some will fail, some won't. Like, okay, I'm gonna apply to med school. It used to be they looked at your academic records and they would evaluate whether you got into med school or not based upon your, okay? Now it isn't, not, not, not anymore. They'll take it into account in some places, but not anymore. If you check the right box, then we'll let you in. So that's the shift. And this is where it gets really dangerous. My friend's daughter had that happen to her going into dental college. Right. This all, all Yep. So kids, kids, what I'm saying to you, Nolan, who else is here? The girls? Who okay, Jenna, you're in college. Nolan, you'll you'll log and you're gonna work hard and you're gonna get good grades. Just be prepared. When you apply for a job or to go to law school or you might not get accepted because Nolan has three strikes against him. What are the three strikes against Nolan? He's a male, he's Christian, and he's white. And that doesn't fit this DEI. And ladies over here, you've got two strikes against you. The one thing going for you is you're female, but you got two strikes against you. You're white and you're Christian. And that will, that will you don't check the box. Well, I wanted to raise this because this is huge. And the New Testament, again, to repeat, there is a new humanity. Faithers and lovers. Faith in Jesus for salvation and the faithers who then love and take care of people in their vocation. Any other questions about this? Okay, well, that was the wild and woolly part. Let's go on. Back to page three. So in, in our Lord's death, he's made peace. He's reconciled the world to his Father, and he has reconciled us to each other in his crucified body. Ephesians 1, which we studied earlier, his divine blood brings peace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. His wounds bring healing. His separation brings our union. In Jesus we are one, in the most profound sense of the word, unity. We are one with Jesus, and in Christ we are one with each other. That's why, look at the footnote, compare then the unity that's given and expressed then from the proper use of the Lord's Supper. In the New Testament, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, namely the cup of wine that we consecrate to convey the, body, the blood of Christ to you in communion, is it not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ? And that rhetorical question is answered how? Yes. And the bread that we break, namely the bread that we consecrate, that then is the vehicle that gives us the body of Christ, is it not a participation or communion in the body of Christ? And the answer, of course, is yes. And then Paul continues, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. 
So this unity in Christ is expressed then in the Lord's Supper. And just a side note, so we should never, are you listening? A Christian should never bring disunity to the Lord's Supper. What do I mean? I'll be as frank as I can. Let's say, for the sake of the discussion, that Brian thinks that he, he no longer believes in God anymore. I, this is just hypothetical, okay? Brian all of a sudden believes, I don't believe in God anymore. And Christianity is just a bunch of, you know what? But, you know, mom and dad keep making him come to church. And you think Kuhlman's going to let him come to communion? Not hardly. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to try and help him. But I will not let his false belief and false teaching bring disunity to the body of Christ expressed in the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? I hope, that, I hope that's helpful. Yes? That's exactly right. It'd be a two-part. I would be sinning, and so would Brian, because, because he no longer would believe that he receives the body and blood in the Lord's Supper. What, what did we learn last week when it was really wild and woolly? He'd be sinning not against bread and wine, but against the body and blood of Christ, and that is why he, he might get sick, he might get weak, and he may even die, as we looked at last week. So let's go to bottom of page three. Now I know, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> You're thinking this. Pastor, so why are we all still so divided? Why are you and Christian divided? Why are Christians divided among themselves? What's all this unity talk when the world is more divided than ever? I'm glad you asked that question. So first of all, we need to be reminded that in this life we walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5. So by faith... We are all one in Christ. The profound reality of our union with Christ and our union with one another is all in Christ, it's not in ourselves. Now, were it left up to us, we'd be back in the business of wall building. Because we all love our walls, don't we? Where they've been knocked down, we try to build them back up again. I mentioned this last week, I'll give you again an example of people trying to build up walls again. There is, there is a foot in this country now because everything's in chaos in this country that there is, there is a, a whole way of thinking going on that now begins to hate capitalism, to hate reason and knowledge, and then move to something else. It's national socialism. And so we have people in our country now, especially young white males, who are told that they're evil because they're white and because they're male. They are now move, shifting a different way. It's national socialism. And they are adopting, if you can look this up on your own, the 1920 platform of the National Socialists in Germany. You know what resulted from that, don't you, in Germany? You can look it up. Look it up, the 1920 National Socialist platform that the Nazis adopted and put into practice in Germany, which is totally racist and anti-Semitic. So people, again, are building up walls again, separating where there should not be. That's, that's an example. And I've met people like this. You think I'm making this up? I've met people like this. So where God and Christ had torn down the wall between circumcised and uncircumcised, there were those in the church, in the New Testament, who tried to put the wall back up again. Read the book of Acts, you'll find out. We do the same. We throw up walls of our opinions, division, politics, walls of jealousy, envy, anger, walls of prejudice and pride, 
And so we take the body of Christ and we tear it into a million pieces, each claiming to be the true one. So to answer your question, so why is there so much disunity? Bingo, I just answered it. It's a three-letter word called what? S-I-N. Yet there is, as Paul teaches in Ephesians 4, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, one Spirit, to whom we have access to the Father through Jesus. We may come from different nationalities, we may speak different languages, we may have different cultures, but we all have a baptismal passport, if you will, that is stamped this way, citizen of heaven. So you and I then are citizens with the saints, as Paul says, members of the family of God. We are built on the firm foundation that God laid down, namely the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, and as Paul said in Ephesians 2, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And he sets everything straight and in order, the key that joins together the old and the new into one undivided people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people who belong to God all in Christ. So here's the distinction I'm making. By faith or by what you see. If you judge things by what you see, there's no unity. If you judge things according to God's word and the reality in Christ, there's one. Now why are we divided again? Because of sin. We bring it upon ourselves. So, in Christ means you didn't do it. Namely this unity. It's all a gift. In other words, the unity is a gift. You have to believe it, trust it, take God and his word. And that's why when we say the Nicene Creed, how do we say it? Do we say, I see the one holy Christian apostolic church? Is that what we say? We don't say that way in the creed. We don't say, I see it. What do we say? I believe it. It's a matter of faith. Faith just simply has to trust God's word. So the church then is never spoken of in individual terms in the scriptures. There's no, I am the church, you are the church, but it's always an inclusive we, together with the saints who've gone before us. We together are one people, one family, one temple of the Holy Spirit. Now you might say that Christ is the end of our idolatrous individualism, where each of us has made ourselves into our own gods. Instead, here's what happens. We get ourselves back in a new way a way free from the barriers and dividing walls of sin, a way that unites and embraces and gathers and includes. That's what the church is called to show forth in the world, namely our unity in Christ Jesus. One baptism, one bread, one cup, one savior, with one death and resurrection for the life of the whole world. <coughs> now once, you're far, once you were far off, Paul said in Ephesians 2, you Gentiles, once you were isolated, you were walled off, you were excluded. But now, you Gentiles have been drawn near, gathered, and included. Namely, you belong. Your baptism testifies to that. Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper testifies to that. And so, we as Gentiles belong to the people of God. We belong to the family of God. We belong to the priesthood of Christ. We belong to the body of Christ, the church, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit of God. So we then are privileged people, and we are gifted, and we are holy, and we are one in Christ. I want to say one more thing on this, and maybe you might have some questions. This is why we, as a corporate 
church body, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we need to start taking the lead in bearing witness to what the scriptures teach on you fill in the blank, whatever subject, and we need to divide Christians where we're divided, where we are divided as Christians, we need to take the lead and say, let's sit down, let's talk, let's study, let's pray. And let's, let's, as best we can in this life and in this world, let us work on exhibiting in our teaching and in our practice the unity that we have in Christ. So what I'm trying to say is this. Okay, so we're, 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 we're Christians say that communion is just simply bread and wine and no forgiveness. We need to politely and in a churchly way, like Paul says in Ephesians, speaking the truth in love, to these Christians, we need to say, dear brother, dear sister, let's sit down, let's talk. Let's read what Jesus says and try to convince them from the word of God. We should take the lead in this. Now, I'm very good at this. What I'm very good at is bashing in the teeth of everybody who, okay? I need, and we all need to be better, instead of just bashing people in the teeth, help, sit down, talk, get this worked out as best we can. I hope that's what I wanted to get at here. Do you have any questions or comments? Okay, so one final point on this. So uh, Matthew Harrison, who's been our synodical president for a number of years, he was reelected uh, as synodical president again here this summer. And he ha he's trying to do this. And he's trying to do it among fellow Lutherans. I think that's a good place to start. Um, so, real quick history lesson. There was a thing in the past called the Synodical Conference. This is in America, and it was among American Lutherans. The Synodical Conference, where the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, together with two other church bodies in America, Lutheran, namely the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church. So, here's its acronym, WELLS. And we have some members here in our congregation that send their children to, to Wells schools in Omaha and Waco. Okay? Um, and then another church body in the United States called the Evangelical Lutheran Senate. So you have three church bodies that a long time ago were a part of what was called the Synodical Conference, which meant that we were in altar and pulpit fellowship with one another. That is to say, a Wisconsin Senate Lutheran could commune at our, our church, and we could commune there. All, all could do, okay? That's what I mean by altar and pulpit fellowship, which would mean that Pastor Kuhlman could go to a Wells congregation at that time and preach, and the Wells pastor could come here at Trinity and preach and give the Lord's Supper because we were in altar and pulpit fellowship. Well, then all of a sudden, uh, the Missouri Synod, this, this is starting like in the 40s, I'll just simply date it this way for the sake of our discussion, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and it culminates in the 70s, the yahoos, the, the, the muckety-mucks and the bigwigs in the Missouri Senate all of a sudden, especially in our seminary in St. Louis, all started thinking that, you know, we're going to go the way of the world. We want to be relevant in America. We want to be big. We want to be a power player in the United States. We want people to look to the Missouri Senate, you know. We're the studs, okay? And so these muckety-mucks in the Missouri Senate said, you know what? In order to be relevant, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to deny that the scripture, the Bible, is the word of God. 
And we're going to have to start denying very things, certain things that are taught in the Word of God. Namely, did Jesus really rise bodily from the dead on the third day? Nah, nah. Were Adam and Eve really historical people? Nah. Was Jonah really swallowed by a big fish or a whale? Nah. Because then we'll be relevant. Okay. Well, you can just imagine what Lutherans in the Wisconsin Senate and the Evangelical Lutheran Senate started saying. You people are going off the rails in Missouri. And they tried to stop it. And basically, the muckety-mucks in the Missouri Senate gave them two middle fingers. So the Synodical Conference dissolved. And as a result of that, we then, in the Missouri Senate, because of their decision, and rightly so, they decided, the Wells and the ELS decided that we are no longer an altar and public fellowship with the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate. And I think you can imagine why. You, as a Lutheran Christian, would you want to go to a congregation where the pastor denies that the Bible is the word of God? Who denies that Adam and Eve are historical beings? And by the way, when you deny this stuff, then you have to deny who? That's right, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what else? His divinity and what he teaches. Because when you read the New Testament, do this, you insomniacs. Read the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the Gospels. And I want you to, um, whether it's on your iPad or if you're a dinosaur like me and you take notes physically with a pen and a paper, you watch how many times Jesus speaks about Adam and Eve, Noah, Jacob, Abraham, the flood, Jonah, etc. And he says, Yes, these are all real people, and these, these, these things did happen. You see what, what's at stake? If you deny these things, you deny the teaching of Jesus and then his divinity. So you can just imagine if you're in the wells of the ELS, ah, we're not, we're not going to come to community at your church anymore because we're, we're not going to let you bring this disunity to the table of the Lord. Make sense? <coughs> so here's, here's my point. Our synodical president... Matthew Harrison is trying to, he's, he's, we're, we're now speaking to these people again, and we are trying to bring back what we used to have, namely a unity in Christ based upon the, the true teaching of God's word. Now, I want, so individually, pray for that. Pray for that bearing fruit. Okay. But when did the LCMS flip back to believing that scripture? Yeah, the question is, okay, so when did the LCMS kind of, regain its uh, balance, if you will, or be faithful again. In general, this happens, this happens beginning in the late 60s. You could even say the 50s, where you have lay people who know their Bible, <laughs> and they get a pastor from St. Louis Seminary, and this pastor, you know, hedges on things, the things I just mentioned. So like, for example, if he would preach from Genesis 1 and 2, and it speaks of Adam and Eve, he'd hedge. And you'd be wondering, does this pastor really believe these things are true? And they, they were sniffing it out. You know, they, they would listen to the pastor teach and preach, and they'd say, does he really believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born the Virgin Mary? And lo and behold, many of these laymen, together with some faithful pastors, were saying, you know what, there's problems at our seminary. They're teaching false doctrine. And so it came to a head. <coughs> In 1974, uh, early 70s, comes to head in 74, where at, at, at the New Orleans Convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate, the president of the St. Louis Seminary, his name is John Teachin, 
goes up to the mic at the synodical convention, dressed like this. Hmm. He's a false teacher. He believes all this false nonsense, and he lies. You can go online, seriously, I'll, I'll write his name on the board. You can actually go online and you can watch his speech at the New Orleans Convention in black and white. I'll write his name if, you, if any of you are interested. John Teach. <coughs> now, to make the long, this is in New Orleans at the Synodical Convention. Is that answering your question? Uh, this is the early 70s. But it all climaxes in 74, which I'll get to in a second. So John Teachin at the Snockel Convention, he tries to address all the things that a committee found out. A committee was appointed by the Synodical president this time. His name was Preuss, okay? J-A-O Preuss. He got a commission together to investigate what was being taught at the seminary. By the way, before I forget it, if you want to read about this history in detail, there's a brand new book written, published by Concordia Publishing House, and the name of the book is this. Exile, which gives you a history of this in detail. Uh, I haven't bought it yet. I want to buy it. Now, so Pres President Preuss appointed a committee to investigate what was happening at St. Louis. The committee did personal interviews, face-to-face -face interviews with uh, professors and committees at the seminary. And lo and behold, what did they find out? Yep, there's false teaching going on. So this comes to a head at the convention in, at New Orleans because there's, there's resolutions to get this taken care of. Can you imagine? So Teachin gets up, goes to the mic, dressed to the nines as a clergyman, and there's, there's a reason for that. Because I know that if I, if, I want, if I want to be treated, now it used to be this way, but not so much anymore, but if I go out in public and I'm dressed like this, people treat me differently. Rather than if I have, you know, the Mickey Mouse tie and, or the torn jeans look. Okay. So he did that on purpose. And then he gives all this, this song and dance about there's no problems at the seminary. This is just a vendetta. It's a personal attack on me and my professors at St. Louis. No, it wasn't. So he lied. So in 1974, what happens after the uh, New Orleans Convention? Because the New Orleans Convention says, no, we need to take care of this. So what happens is, is that the majority of the faculty at St. Louis, all but like four, I'm um, doing this off the top of my head, four to six professors, all but four to six professors stage these guys were ahead of their time. They called KMOX in St. Louis, the TV station, and KMOX, the radio station, and said, we're going to have a publicity stunt. Those are my words, not theirs, mine. And they walked out of the seminary campus with crucifix, candles, all vested. That is, they have their pyramids, not their pyramids, their vestments on, stoles, and they marched off the seminary campus in a parade. And it was all caught on TV, all on the radio, and they did it on purpose to gain sympathy of the public. And so what they considered themselves, this is called the walkout. And then these people who left called themselves then seminary in exile. Thus, this was the term. Seminex. Seminary in Exile. And thus the name of this book that's giving you the history of this. Exile. Well, to make the long story short, Robin asked, when did the Missouri Senate get its act together? Well, after that, we, we really needed to get our act together because then all of a sudden you have rogue district presidents who are then taking men 
from this seminary in exile. They walked out in St. Louis and said, okay, we're not going to work at the seminary in St. Louis. We're going to form our own at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And then all of a sudden you have this issue where districts, imagine Trinity Murdoch doesn't have a pastor in 1974, 1975, 1976. You need a pastor. And your district president says, I got one for you. And you say, where's he from? Oh, he's from Seminex. And if you've been paying attention, you're saying, uh-uh, uh-uh. And you have district presidents say, uh-huh, yeah, you are. Okay? And so the Missouri Senate had to, t had to, issue, had to take, take this into its hands. And so to make the long, I'm sorry for the long uh, stuff here. That's when Missouri finally had to blank or get off the pot. Do we believe that the Bible is the word of God? Do we believe that Adam and Eve are real, et cetera, et cetera? And we said, yes. And so certain district presidents were removed. Professors who didn't teach with them were removed. Okay. Now, that's to answer your question. Now, did that mean, this is kind of like, this kind of like, it's a parallel universe. World War II. Did we defeat the Nazis? Yeah, we did. But we really didn't. We really didn't. Why not? Do you realize, folks? Do you realize? I'm going to, boy, this is really wild and woolly today. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, do you realize that after World War II, the United States government, in a, in a, in a thing called Operation Paperclip, and you can look it up. It's on Google. Operation Paperclip, the United States government took into their care and put into our universities and our, and our big wig, um, what am I trying to say? Our big wig offices in the United States government, etc., put Nazis in place. You realize that? Now, I say that to you to say another thing. Yes, we defeated the Nazis in World War II, but their ideas and their, their, their worldview were bearing the fruit right now because it was brought to the United States. And I'm going I'm to just simply say it this way. I'll get to you in a second, Rhonda. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the transgender movement is a result of the Nazification of the United States of America. Who was it that performed experiments on people? And the Japanese did as well, by the way. Uh, I've been told, in fact, I was told yesterday by Pastor Christensen, our good friend, who served two vacancies here, and he was in Japan for a stint before he retired. He said that the J Japanese did 10 times worse than the Nazis did, but it didn't get any publication, and they were not held accountable. <coughs> but again, we, we need to learn our history. And so in a sense, what I'm trying to say is this, Robin, and all of you, is that in the same way, you're responsible. Sorry, hon. <laughs> did, did the Missouri Senate win? The, it's called the battle for the Bible. Did the Missouri Senate win the battle for the Bible in 1970? Some would say yes. But still to this day in the Missouri Senate, we still have this false teaching going on among men who were taught at the Seminex Seminary and did get positions in the Missouri Senate and their pastors and leaders in the Missouri Senate. So similarly in the United States, Rhonda, with the Nazis. Yeah, with the Nazis, um, we didn't win. We pulled, they pulled out. They pulled out for a reason. The Nuremberg trials came out. Everybody read about the Nuremberg. Do you know how many actual Nazis got executed during that? I don't know. What's the exact number? Three. Was it three? Seven of them went to prison for life, and three of them were executed. And then many Nazis, like I just said, were brought to the United States. Yeah, that this 
Yeah, this, this, is, this, is, this is part of history that's not taught. What I've just, I, you, you're probably just going, oh my God, this pastor's insane. No, look it up. You can look it up. It's a matter of historical record. Are you, some of you are texting and looking it up right now, aren't you? Operation Paperclip. Yeah. So that was, that was a long answer. So yeah, we won and yet we didn't. And the Missouri Senate still to this day, for, so for example, every three years when we have a synodical convention, we have congregations in the Missouri Senate that send resolutions for the convention that are anti-Bible teaching. And of course, the, the chairman of the committee has to deal with this. Thanks be to God, the chairman of the committee says, deep six it. Now, that's, that's just a quick way of what should happen, brothers and sisters, for unity. What should happen? If you have a congregation in the Missouri Senate that sends a resolution into the synodical uh, convention for ordaining women, what should happen? Here's what should happen, is it should start on the circuit level on the, on the first thing, is that the, the brothers in the circuit should say to this pastor and this congregation, dear brother and dear congregation, you're wrong here. This is not what the Bible teaches. And you're advocating for something that is unbiblical. Now, let's sit down, let's talk. And the goal is repentance and faith and then holy living. That's the goal. Now, if the congregation and pastor will not repent and will not use Jesus properly for forgiveness and will not teach according to the scriptures, what needs to happen for the unity in Christ? They need to be removed. In other words, if you don't want to be a part of the Missouri Senate and teach what we teach, then leave. We don't want that to happen. We'd rather have you repented in faith and we can have joy in our unity. See, that should happen. Now, that's another thing you need to pray for and work for. That's hard. But we don't want to do what's hard, right? I do that in my marriage all the time. I don't want to do what's hard. I don't want to be repentant. I don't want to be faithed. I don't want to be led in holy living. Yes, Mary. Yes, yes, they're, they're, they're being taught faithfully in our seminaries. They are. Yes, yes. But again, there is this remnant of the 1970s that still is in the Missouri Senate. Yep, that's still there. Yep. So, for example, I'm, I'm going to be crucified for saying this, but Salt, Salt District congregations, Atlantic Seaboard, Pacific Seaboard congregations, because they want to be relevant. If you live on the east or west coast in your Missouri Senate congregation, you are such a minority. People don't give you any kudos. And so you desperately want kudos. You desperately want to be relevant. And the temptation then is to what? Give in to the culture. Yeah. Yeah. There was another hand? Yes. Yeah, great question. So for, for a number of years, the, the, set, the professors that left the Missouri Senate and the students who left with them formed their own seminary, and they, they met at Covenant. Let's see, did I say it correctly? Uh, Covenant, I, I'm doing this off the top of my head. There was another seminary in St. Louis, and they would meet on their campus. And then, did they go to Springfield? No, 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 no. Now, so then they met there for a while, and then something happened. Here's what happened. So as a result of these people that left the Missouri Senate, another church body was founded. 
Now I gotta remember. Oh, the Association of Evangelical Lutheran Churches, the AELC. So you, some of you old timers remember this. See, I'm an old timer. Okay, and then, so they were still meeting at Covenant in uh, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, but then something happened. In 1988, what happened? I think that's the correct date. <coughs> Here's what happened. The AELC and the American Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Church in America formed one church body, the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. So then the Covenant Seminary was closed with the Lutherans were using, the seminary and exile seminary, they closed and then they just went to the seminaries in the American Lutheran Church and the Lutheran Church in America, like in St. Paul, Minnesota and other parts of the United States. Let me take one more minute to say one more thing about this, this whole history. If you wonder why, I'm going to make a general statement, but I think I'm right. Maybe you've wondered, because you might have relatives who are members of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You may have friends that might be members, or you've just been watching from afar. And you might be wondering, why does this church body do all the unfaithful things? For, so, for example, their bishop is a woman, and she's a lesbian. And she's pushing all the relevant buttons, transgenderism, you name it. In other words, the bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America is pushing everything except what? Faithful Christianity. And if you've been wondering, why is that? I'll tell you why. You know who's responsible, generally speaking, for the off-the-rails that's going on in the ELCA? This is going to blow your mind. It's the Missouri Senate theologians that left and formed the AELC and then joined these two bodies to form this. It's these former Missouri people are mainly responsible for that. Now, that's, that's a wide statement. I, I can document this if you'd like. I can show you. But that's a whole other study. Yes. Positive note. Positive note. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> how close do you think we are to fellowship with Wells? And yeah, the question is how close do you think we are getting back this, quote, synodical conference way we're in altar and pulpit fellowship with the Wisconsin Senate and the ELS? Well, I'm not sure about that. I don't know the latest. I'm hopeful. There are certain stumbling blocks that we need to get over that are going to be difficult because they've been, they've been so ingrained. And one of the things that's so ingrained is this, is that we haven't talked to each other for decades now. So it's a vice versa. No talking for decades, generations. And so you've had families that are divided. You have, you have communities that are divided. Because in some communities, like in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, you have all three congregations, Missouri Senate, ELS, Wisconsin, in one community. And they don't talk to one another. Do you realize that when I taught in Siberia, in Siberia, where I taught my classes, right next door was the headquarters of the Wisconsin Senate Mission Department in Siberia. And I asked the bishop that I was working with, I said, can I go visit those folks and talk to them? He said, they won't talk to you. I said, oh, come on, you got to be kidding me. So I did. I walked over there, knocked on their door, and I identified who I was. And would, would they like to sit and visit? Nope. Nope. That's one of the hardest things. So <laughs> I've gotten to know a Wisconsin Senate pastor quite well who's in North Carolina. And this has been very helpful. And I've been begging him 
Let's work on this and get it solved. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat>